0: Let's dive into the scripture together. We're going to be in chapter 3 of Philippians this morning. And uh, it's kind of curious. It's Father's Day. And we have uh, here in this passage, I believe, uh, a a word of a spiritual father uh, to us as his spiritual children. Beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. (laughs) The word finally here might lead us to believe that, well, Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Philippians, but hey, you don't have to look very far to see that he's not quite done, right? He's still actually going to uh, continue for a little bit. This word finally actually means um, furthermore or the rest of the things that remain. Uh, and, and so Paul is sharing this. And I think also it, as well, it means in summary, in summary of, of what has been previously said. And he says, finally, in summary, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice. Rejoice. Now, I have to say that as fathers, one of our biggest our biggest tasks in life is encouraging our children. Maybe you experienced great encouragement from your father as you grew up. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you were generous in lavishing encouragement upon your children as they grew up maybe you didn't but i have to say that encouragement is indeed one of the things that impacts children both naturally and spiritually that cannot be that, that, that the impact of that i don't think can be underestimated i'd like for us to look back at uh, chapters 1 and 2 briefly at what what paul has been Uh, giving forth to these his spiritual sons and daughters. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Take note, look back in verse 3 of chapter 1. There Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And in verse 7, he says, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I, I have you in my heart. And verse 8, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And 12, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Then in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know what, that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 25, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then verse 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too. I urge you to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like a great father saying, you go, kiddo. You dig in and go and let your faith blossom and express your joy in doing so. And so in verse 1 of chapter 3, the apostle Paul says, finally, in summary of all of this, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord and to write the same things over and over to you is no problem for me. It's no problem to encourage you again and again. Plus, it's a safeguard. How in the world is rejoicing a safeguard? Well, think about it. Through these through the chapter one and chapter two, Paul has also talked about some hardship and challenges. And he says, rejoice anyway. You see, rejoicing, rejoicing requires discipline to focus on God's perspective and God's provision. We're kind of naturally drawn to think about the negative in our circumstances about what 's wrong instead of right, would you say would you agree with me in that? We look at something and the thing that stands out to us is what well, 's wrong? The second law of thermodynamics is kind of interesting it 's a natural law that kind of uncovers this thought. Um, the law of thermodynamics is uh, the relationship between uh, heat and other forms of energy. And the, the, the first law basically says that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It's just transferred from one, uh, from, from one condition to another. The second law of thermo, thermodynamics, however, says that the quality of that energy changes as it is transferred from one form to the other. And there is a natural tendency of any isolated system to degenerate into a more disordered state. Let me say that again. There's a natural tendency of any isolated system to degenerate into a more disordered state. In other words, without intervention from an outside source to course correct There's a natural tendency for things to degenerate into greater and greater disorder. To illustrate this, consider home maintenance. Gentlemen in this room, I'm speaking to you because home maintenance typically is your task, right? And you let things go and the drip keeps dripping and gets worse and worse and worse. You let the paint peel and pretty soon the lumber underneath of it begins to deteriorate. Consider also your children's bedroom. Without intervention from an outside source, namely you, parents, there is a tendency for it to descend into greater and greater disorder, right? Yeah. The same is true of our emotions and our thoughts and our beliefs. If we don't maintain a sense of discipline in both controlling and building up our emotions, our thoughts and our beliefs, they begin to deteriorate. So Paul's admonition is indeed that outside source to say, Stay encouraged. His admonition is to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, he says, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, again, let me say it again, rejoice. It's a safeguard. It's a safeguard. And the discipline and the practice of it helps us both maintain health and growth. It's a safeguard against this downward spiral of negativity and that naturally occurs when we are left to our own devices. And without, honestly, without intervention of an outside source to remind us of God's perspective and provision, we tend to tank. Now, in verse 2... Paul shifts gears, pretty dramatically, actually. He he writes, beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Paul is saying here as well that part of safeguarding is warning. Warning. Warning about the dogs, the uh, the 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 evil workers the false circumcision now is he talking about three different things here i think not i think he is using the word dogs and evil workers to to describe the false circumcision now what in the world is false circumcision well it's interesting that the the apostle here doesn't really spell that out specifically. Rather, he provides a contrast with the following verses. And it's a pretty dramatic contrast. I would like to say, however, as as we dive into that contrast, that the false circumcision that he's speaking of is the idea of religion, religious works. In other words, the idea that, that if If I follow this religious right, or this religious discipline, surely I will turn out okay. Turn out okay enough that I'll be able to have a relationship with God in eternity. Unfortunately, however, the apostle is very clear in saying that is not the case. Verse three, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. True circumcision, he says, is the worship in in the spirit of God. Now, worship simply means um, service to, um, to minister to God. To serve God in the spirit of God means that we serve God it, according to the life of God, the word spirit is pneuma. It is it is a word that, well, we have the word pneumatic, right? And it speaks of air. You pump up your tire with a pneumatic pump. And it's it, it most dramatically here speaks of breath. And what is breath but the sign of life? And so worshiping, in the Spirit of God is worshiping in a way that's consistent with the life of God. Consistent with the life of Jesus. Jesus met a woman at the well in Samaria. We read about it in chapter four of the Gospel of John. And there he says to the woman at the well, An hour is coming and is now already, it's here right now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He's looking, he's watching for people who will worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's the number one thing that is the mark of the true circumcision. Worshiping God in the spirit of God, consistent with who God is. Now, the second thing he notes is that the true circumcision is glory in Christ Jesus. The word glory here is translated boast in other places. To boast in Christ Jesus. Romans 15, um, the apostle writes, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And in Galatians chapter 6, he says... But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is saying, this is what I boast in, the work of Christ, not in what I have done. It's the work of Christ. And that is the second mark of the true circumcision. The third thing he says is putting no confidence in the flesh. Hmm. If we dissect the word circumcision, it has everything to do with flesh, right? It indeed is a religious rite that is carried out in the flesh. Um, For those who are unfamiliar with it, it is the covenant sign that God said, uh, should be given to every, every son who is born. On the eighth day, he will be circumcised. The, the foreskin will be removed from his, his um, I can't say it any other way, his penis, right? And it's cool because it, in so doing, God provided not only a covenant sign, but provided for the health of a nation. Now, he says, put this third thing, put no confidence in the flesh, in the signs of the flesh. No confidence in what is done to your skin or through your skin, what you're able to do in your own efforts. Again, Galatians 6, Paul writes, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You see, circumcision is the outward religious ritual that identified a Jew as a Jew. And the assumption is that circumcision means that you now have a right relationship with God. But in Romans chapter 2, this same apostle, the apostle Paul, says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You see, it has to do with the condition of the heart, not the condition of your body parts. Paul is confident in saying that having no confidence in the flesh is the mark of having a right and a true relationship with God. To underscore this, he goes on in verses 4 through 6. Let's just read it. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more... Number one, circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. And number two, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul is laying out his religious pedigree right here and it's pretty astounding not only it does he say that yes i am i am a jew through and through i've i've pursued all of the religious rights i have the right heritage but i have kept the law he says as to the law of pharisee now what is a pharisee He is one who is is dedicated in his entire life to rigidly keep all of the law. And I'm not talking about simply the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about all 613 laws that were written in the Old Testament. Every single one. Keeping them religious. Now, it's important to understand that Paul Paul says (laughs) he's a Pharisee. He's kept this law and and his righteousness under the law. He's very specific to say this righteousness is under the law. He is found blameless. Wow. What an incredible statement. Blameless. Not only does he say that, as a Pharisee, he was... He was, um, he was completely, how do I say this, horrified by the thought that this man, Jesus, would claim to be the Son of God and that he would eat and drink with sinners and would touch the unclean. For all of those things were counted among those 613 laws that he kept religiously. So as a Pharisee, he was zealous in persecuting the church. We know that, that, that the Lord met him on the road to Damascus, right? And he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, God's people, his church, those who who rely on Jesus for their salvation, those who rely on his righteousness for salvation belong to him. And Jesus says the persecution of his people, his church is a violation, a persecution of himself. And so that zeal drove the apostle Paul. In all of that, he's saying, Hey, listen, if anyone has claimed to be um, righteous in, in the law, to be a Hebrew of Hebrews, it's me. I'm qualified. And therefore, I'm qualified to tell you that that is not where it's at. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's interesting here, the word gain means money in the bank. Those things that I considered to be an absolute certainty uh, giving me the the assurance of my salvation, I've counted them a loss. It's a dramatic reevaluation. Paul's content not simply to dismiss all those things that once were important to him and become indifferent to them rather he rejects them he rejects them even with a sense of horror and he he treats them as liabilities i've counted <laughs> i I've accounted for. It's it's kind of a a it's it's weighing in the balance, gain and loss. It's an accounting term, and in, in very real measure, it's a rabbinic sort of or that the uh, teaching the rabbis would speak of this. Jesus himself did as well. In Mark chapter eight, he says, "What does it profit a man to gain the whole world?" and forfeit his soul. This balancing is part of that, the tradition of the rabbi in his teaching and the apostle Paul is doing it here as well. Not only that, he goes on. He says, not only do I I count these things as a loss, but verse eight, he says, more than that, I count all things, To be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. (laughs) Not only is it these things that he's listed, his spiritual quote unquote pedigree, but he says everything Everything that might conceivably be considered as giving him merit can be, or giving him the, the capability of being accepted by God as a religious person. He not only counts them loss, but he counts them as rubbish. Have you ever met somebody? or maybe you even yourself have said once upon a time when you're questioned by someone who says, hey, are you going to heaven? How do you know? And they respond, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I, I mean, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't embezzled funds. I'm a pretty good person. That is exactly what Paul is talking about. That answer unveils the very heart of Paul's indictment of religion. With its attempt to appear before God on the grounds of one's personal merit. Whatever may be regarded as a prop as a prop to support the person who looks for something to boast about in their own behavior, reveals the fact that that person is blind. Blind to the fact that that he or she can live only, only in the grace of God. They don't know. And if they do, they're ignoring it. Any virtue that Paul would call his own is counted as not only a loss, but he says as rubbish. There's a a word that we use on this continent, right? You hear it a lot in the UK, it's rubbish. What do you do with rubbish? You haul it out to the curb, right? It's trash, it's refuse. Some of you in your, in your Bibles, that word may be translated dung. What is dung? The vernacular is something I won't say here. But it's, it's stuff that you don't want to touch. Stuff you don't want to deal with. I, I I don't know how many of you have dogs. Yeah. How many of you pick up after your dogs? I I do that. I don't know every day three or four. I don't know when, how long. I, I we have a great big backyard, so I let it go and bake for a while. You know. <laughs> And I often have this feeling when I'm going around in the morning picking this stuff up, thinking about our dogs. And here I am serving them. (laughs) There's something upside down about that. How many of you saw on Bell Road this last week at the corner of Bell and Bullard a van with a with a uh, a banner on it that says, we scoop your dog poop. It was there, it was there. Somebody's in it for the business. We'll pick up your dog's business. It's our business is what they're saying. That's what Paul is saying. All of this stuff amounts to that. It's pretty vigorous language. The tense of the verb goes from perfect to the present, counting it. Paul is not only talking about the things of his past, but also even the things, the ever-present temptation to allow that mindset to take root. It's his the the things that he could claim as a Jew, but now also even as a Christian. And none of it can be considered to be of any value, any value compared to knowing Christ. The surpassing value of knowing Jesus, my Lord. It's not only um, superior to the privileges of Judaism and religion. It excels them to such a degree and so far exceeds them that it, it's it's a completely different class of, of thinking. Knowing Christ is way out of, of way beyond the value of religion. Knowing the word "knowing" here comes from the root "gnosko," and it is it is um, to, not just to be able to regurgitate facts. It's not just this intellectual understanding. It's the perceiving. It's the feeling of yes, truly understanding the depth of. There is a Jewish idiom that that parallels this. The word. Yada is used and it has to do with the way a man knows a woman. It is that intimacy. Paul's expression to know Christ is intimate. It's a direct relationship. And he says to know him is, is of immense immeasurable value. And then he says, I've suffered. I've suffered the loss of all things for this. Paul's intimate relationship with Jesus is not not secured without a price. You see, intimacy with God is something that requires letting go. Letting go of everything that we hold on to that somehow we believe surely should qualify us as having merit before God. That I may gain Christ is the ending phrase. That I may gain Christ. Is Christ someone to be gained? That seems a little strange, doesn't it? The person and the work of Christ are inseparably joined together. To gain him is to have him as one's all-prevailing merit. That is, Christ is my merit. Not the things I do, but Jesus himself. To know him in the intimacy of personal trust. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This intimacy that Paul is speaking of is something that requires letting go. Letting go of the many things that we hold on to. That Christ would become that which is not just most precious, but preeminent in all things. Verse 9 and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, this, this um, gaining Christ and being in Christ, it's the same thing. It's the two sides of a single coin. To be in Christ is nothing less than having the righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God. The possession of this righteousness is, is that which provides the not guilty verdict before God. Paul makes it clear then that such righteousness this righteousness that is god's it's himself this righteousness is diametrically in contrast to anything that i can bring to the table diametrically opposed and he stresses that it comes to the believer as a gift a gift of god and that We receive that gift through faith, not by earning it, otherwise it's not a gift, right? We don't earn it, we receive it, and we receive it by faith. It's God's initiative. He brings the gift, we receive it. Galatians chapter two, Paul writes, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. Righteousness of God is confirmed upon us by God in response to our faith in Jesus. Too many Christians, I think too many Christians, have yet to fully grasp, fully embrace, fully appropriate the freedom that comes with this truth. We live under this heavy load, I've gotta do this, I've gotta do that. No, you don't. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the flip of that. It's the exact opposite of that. Instead of having to do this in order to be justified, in order to have a standing with God, no. Because I have standing with God, because I am am righteous before him by virtue of the gift of God himself, I want to do these things. I want to live in a manner that reflects his righteousness, his goodness, his love. I want to do that. Why? Because I'm so grateful. I couldn't get there by myself. Only God could give me that. And in response to him, again, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, those first two verses, in response to this amazing grace, I urge you, therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice. And he says, this is the only thing that makes sense. That's your reasonable service of worship, he says. Verse 10, back in Philippians. Verse 10 and 11 have become a life verse for me that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, that I may know him. Yes, this word that I may know may express purpose, that i may know that may be the purpose for which paul paul is pursuing that i may gain christ and verse 8 reflects that or it may very well be an extension of of these ideas that he's been uh, pouring forth Uh, the idea that god's righteousness is received by faith as it makes it possible That's what makes it possible for a person to know Christ. So it it could be the purpose. It could be the possibility. That I may know could also speak of the payoff. (laughs) So that I may know him. That's the payoff, knowing him. Honestly, I don't know exactly. It could be any or all of those ideas that I may know. It's curious, the NIV, I don't typically... um, the, uh, The New American Standard is the Bible that I own and study out of, but the New International Version translates this I want to know Christ. And I have to say, I like that iteration. I want to know him. Now, knowing him, again, is that intimate knowledge, that intimate embrace, that intimate understanding of one another, that intimate relationship. He says, I want to know Christ intimately and the power of his resurrection. I don't know if he's adding this or if, it's, if these are saying all the same thing to him, but it's curious. He says, I do want to know the power of the resurrection. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin now if i've died with christ we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that christ Having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, he writes, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then in his letter to the Ephesian church, Chapter one, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Paul is saying to us that the power of the resurrection is yours. And he's praying that the eyes of our heart and mind would begin to grasp that the power of the resurrection is that which makes dead things come alive that which turns old things into brand new things 2 Corinthians 5:17 Paul speaks of the fact that we are new creations in Christ and it has to do it's connected with the power of the resurrection But he doesn't stop there. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of the, res- his, the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's a strange kind of fellowship, isn't it? You ever gotten together with somebody and said, hey, let's fellowship, let's suffer together. The word is koinonia. Koinonia. It means to participate with. It, it, it has the connotation of communion. That is sharing with. Intimacy. Uh, a, a gift that is jointly contributed. Fellowship. The fellowship of sharing. The koinonia of his sufferings. Describes this. This, I think, very close affinity that Paul had with the sufferings of Christ. We read about it in Colossians chapter 1, where he writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Second Corinthians chapter 4, he writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body in the body the dying of jesus so that the life of jesus also may be manifested in our body for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for jesus sake so that the life of jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh Paul suffered greatly for the gospel. And I think some of of that suffering is being expressed here. I have to say, however, that the same is true for us. There is something that happens when people suffer together that knits them together in a way that nothing else does. I think about um, those brave souls who shared the trenches in World War II They became brothers for life. Even now in our military, there are brothers and sisters who experience suffering together and they're bonded together for life. There is something in the midst of suffering, especially suffering for the name of Jesus, that bonds us to him that enables us to have a communion with him that we cannot get any other way. Show me someone who has suffered greatly for Christ and I'll show you someone who has a deep abiding relationship with God. There is something in the midst of suffering that we are to lean into knowing that when we do, we will experience the embrace of God himself. And being conformed to his death. That means shaped by, in the likeness of his death. Galatians 2 verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Colossians chapter three, Paul writes, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There's not uncertainty here at all. It is absolutely certain that we will indeed share in the glory of Christ even as we die with him. Finally, he says that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This word attain is um, a little confusing to us as, as uh, people who speak English. Because when we think of attaining, we think of of striving for a goal, right? But the word simply means to arrive at. To arrive at the resurrection of the dead. This is what really matters both to the Apostle Paul and I think any believer. Believer who desires to go deep with God. Would you stand with me? It's important to understand that the apostle Paul goes on in verse 12 and says, you need to know I haven't already obtained this or I haven't already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. We're all in that same boat, right? Lord, this morning we desire to press on, to press on to lay hold of this intimate relationship that you desire for us. And we know that that requires in very real measure the letting go of those things that we have held on to thinking that somehow they will will enable us to find favor with you. Jesus, that's a truth that we have such difficulty with that it's your righteousness, not ours, that qualifies us to be your children. This morning, if there's anybody here who's been grappling with this or maybe never really understood that Jesus pays it all. He is the one who makes it possible for us to experience the fullness of eternity with him. I'd invite you to Pray with someone this morning. There'll be some people waiting here at the front to, to pray with you if you would like. Connect the dots. Make a, make a decision today to walk in that fullness of truth. Lord, we thank you for your grace toward us and for the fact that it is abundant far beyond even what we can imagine. Thank you as well, Lord, for speaking our language. We pray that we would, yes, live in a manner that's worthy of this calling that's rooted in grace. We wanna live in response to that, Lord, not in trying to gain it. How we love you. We pray for your blessing upon us as individuals and as a fellowship, even as we leave here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.